would please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. Turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Here then the reading of God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, if you would please bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. It was in June of 1939. Union Theological Seminary in New York extended a special invitation to a a German pastor and theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard of him. They extended an invitation to him to come and teach at their school. Because of the situation in Germany at the time, the invitation was very attractive and hard to pass up. You see, Hitler and the Nazi party were securely in power, and in a few short months they would invade Poland, then sparking World War II. And the church in Germany at that time was suffering under the persecution of Hitler. The state had taken over control of the church, and many Christians had capitulated rather than resisting Nazi rule. But Bonhoeffer did not. Instead, he became part of a movement called the Confessing Church that refused to water down the truths of the gospel. They refused to subscribe to the anti-Semitism and other things and that was being perpetuated by the Nazis at this time. But Bonhoeffer knew that the situation was becoming dire in Germany. Initially, Bonhoeffer accepted the invitation to teach at Union Seminary in 1939. And he came over and he began teaching. But he regretted his decision almost immediately as he stepped onto American soil. After much inner turmoil, he wrote a letter to his friend, Reinhold Niebuhr. And this is one of the things he said in that letter. He said, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive 
or willing the victory of the nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. You may know the story. After that, Bonhoeffer returns to his native Germany, only to be arrested a few short years later in 1943 and then hanged in the Moor concentration camp only 23 days, 23 days before the end of World War II. See, Bonhoeffer, despite living under the thumb of Hitler and the Nazis, was a free man. He may not have been physically free, but he was spiritually free. And because he was spiritually free, he was willing and able to give up physical freedoms for the sake of Christ. Last week, as we were going through the first several cha- uh, verses of chapter 5, We talked about the fact that Christ has set us free. And what he has set us free from. The fact that he has set our conscience free from guilt and from shame and from accusation from Satan. Paul in this letter has been pleading with the Galatians, hoping and praying that they would turn from their legalism that these Judaizers among them are perpetuating and teaching. And that through faith in Christ, they, they would realize that they have been set free. Free from the law, free from legalism, from guilt, and from shame. And he's calling them to live in freedom. But in verses 13 through 15 here, Paul is worried that the Galatians are going to take this freedom and swing too far in the other direction. Go from legalism to licentiousness. But what he says here is that we were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Let's use the analogy of food. If you eat too much, you're called a glutton. If you eat too little, you're, you're prescribed with an eating disorder. Both of them are harmful. Both of them can, can cause death. Instead, we have this delicate tension between the two of them, the middle ground, not too much, not too little. See, there's this tension in our freedom in Christ as well. Paul doesn't want the Galatians to think too little of their freedom and develop this freedom disorder by returning to legalism under the Judaizers. But he, doesn't also, he also doesn't want them to take advantage of their freedom and become freedom gluttons either. So last week we talked about the fact that we are free and we should not return to the freedom of legalism. Now this week we're going to tackle the other side of that pendulum swing. For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Last week I mentioned one of the things that freedom is not. And I think in this country we get the idea that freedom uh, is sort of synonymous with um, being autonomous. We have this notion that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want to do. Now, you don't have to tell us that this is not the case. You just have to try driving, let's say, 100 miles an hour down 107. 
and see if you're free to do whatever it is you want to do. My children know that I am not free to do whatever I want to do, as I have been pulled over a couple of times with them in the car, and they will not let me forget that. <laughs> We're not free to do whatever it is we want. See, we get our freedom mixed up with being autonomous. We are free. We aren't self-ruling. We're not our own masters. We were never created to be. We were created under God's authority, not our own. We were created by God for His glory, not for our own. Something always has authority over us. You see, there's always something in our lives that's driving our actions. Ideally, that driving force would be the Holy Spirit, but that's not always the case. A lot of times, our selfish parts and our own desires are driving our actions. Uh, Paul calls it our flesh. It's our, our appetites. It is the desire for, for fame or fortune or power or sex or comfort or pleasure. These things are driving our actions. If we think that because we are free, we can let these desires kind of run wild in our lives, then we'll understand what Paul says here, that we are actually slaves. If we believe that we're free to seek after whatever will bring us pleasure, then we'll be constantly seeking after that next thrill. If we believe that we're free to seek after fortune, then we won't, then we'll constantly be seeking. There won't be enough money in the world to satisfy our desires. There's always going to be someone who has more. If we believe that because we are free, we can simply seek our own comfort, then what will happen is every time in our life that we suffer the slightest disruption or interruption or inconvenience, our world is going to fall apart. No, Christ didn't set us free for these things. Christ didn't set us free to sin. No, what he did, he set us free from sin. Now, often, I don't think that we as Christians go about thinking, you know what, I'm free, so I'm just going to live exactly how I want to live. I think it's more subtle in our lives. I think we have this, this belief down deep inside of us. We think, well, because Christ died on the cross, my sins are covered. Therefore, it probably doesn't matter as much how I live my life. We forget about the fact that God has called us to live holy lives. That we need to use our freedom for holiness. Remember, He didn't set us free to sin. He set us free from sin. And I believe that in our culture, holy has become like a four-letter word. I don't, I don't think that most Christians will say to themselves, I'm free, so I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm just going to live my life like it's a party. I believe that most often we just get lazy as Christians. We don't really care about our personal holiness, how we're living our lives, because we believe, you know what, my sins are covered. Christ has taken care of it on the cross. Imagine it this way. If we show up at our job on a Monday morning and our boss hands us a paycheck. It says, here's your paycheck for the next two weeks. 
Now here's a stack of stuff that I'd like you to get done. If you're anything like me, my motivation to get that stack of stuff done is greatly diminished by the fact that I have that paycheck in my hand already. Um, if you get paid before you do the job, your motivation uh, is diminished. I think we kind of have that view with Christ. Well, we've already been paid. Does it really matter if we do the work or not? We settle into our comfortable Christian lives, not really doing much, just existing, knowing that we're covered. We sit back and put our spiritual lives into cruise control instead of growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Last week, I kind of skipped over verse 6 intentionally because uh, I feel like this is one of the best, the most poignant verses in all of Galatians. It's one of my favorites in the book. And in it, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You see, we believe as good Presbyterians that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But the thing is, saving faith is never alone. Instead, it is accompanied by works. And the the way that those works are displayed are through the way that we love. You see, what we believe is shown in the way of how we live. It's shown by our love, our love for God and our love for others around us. So based on the fact that we are free, that we have been called by God to live free lives, but in holiness, as Francis Schaeffer's book describes, how then shall we live? We've been set free from our obligation to fulfill the law. We've been set free by grace through faith. Now we are free to serve each other. Not too long ago, I participated in a race. It was a 5K called the Trots to Adopt. Um, we, Stephanie and I had participated in it the year before, not as runners, but as part organizers. It was one of our fundraisers that we used to raise money to bring that great sum to town. Uh, the following year, uh, we had the privilege of running in the race. Now, I've only run three 5Ks in my life, and so I don't consider myself the fastest person in the world, far from it. But I was looking forward to the fact that I could participate as a runner in this race. Well, as I was about two-thirds of the way through this course, feeling very good about myself, suddenly I noticed someone running in the opposite direction toward me. Not only are they running toward me, uh, but I realized that it was a female. She had finished the race and was coming back in our direction. Uh, it was not um, the greatest moment for my manhood. But what she was doing is she was coming back to help other runners, some of her friends that weren't maybe as fit as she was, wasn't as good as running, so that she could run with them and help motivate them to the finish line. You see, her obligation was fulfilled. She had already crossed the finish line, and now she was coming back to serve, to help others. You see, when our life is so secure in Christ, we are able to serve. We are able to give up our physical lives to others in service to love God and to love 
other people. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to be martyrs, or God is calling all of us to become martyrs like Bonhoeffer was in Germany. He may be calling us to that, and that is a high calling. This also doesn't mean that we should just quit our jobs and suddenly we need to go to other countries and become missionaries. It means that we need to spend the time where we are in the lives that God has called us to, to serve one another. A few years ago, the home group that Stephanie and I were a part of in our former church desired and felt a calling by God to make an impact in the community around us. Stephanie and I lived next door to a neighbor who had the reputation of being maybe not the most the easiest person to be along with in our neighborhood. Um, she had, but what, what she struggled with is that she had issues in her yard. You see, one of our other neighbors had done some work in their backyard, changed the topography of the yard, and so now water was flowing from their yard into her yard. And it was flooding it every time it rained and just sitting there. It was awful. Um, she estimated, she got a couple of estimates as to what the cost would be, and it was several thousand dollars for her to fix uh, her backyard. Money that she just simply did not have. Now, our home group prayed about what we could do and how we can help, and we asked her if we could fix her yard for her. So on Saturday morning, we showed up with our shovels and a ditch witch. We put in a modified French drain in her backyard, took care of her flooding problem, and everything was good. Needless to say, she was blown away by the kindness of seemingly strangers. And immediately we noticed a dramatic change in our relationship with our neighbor. See, one of the other things we did to raise money for Maddie Grace's, yard, uh, Maddie Grace's adoption is that we had several yard sales at our house. And this neighbor, during our first yard sale, was very much opposed to the fact that there was a lot of people around, that we were doing a yard sale. And uh, she was very animate uh, about her opposition. But after this happened, after our fixing of her property, not only did she participate in yard sales, she actually donated materials as well uh, for subsequent yard sales. She also came to several of our home group meetings that we meet on Sunday nights, and she even attended our church on occasion. Needless to say, the Holy Spirit was working in our life, and we pray that He still is. You see, opportunities for service are all around us. But service isn't easy. Because when we serve one another, what we're doing is we're sacrificing. We're giving of ourselves. We're putting other people's needs in front of our own. And the reason that we're able to do this is because our greatest need has been taken care of already. We talked about this last week. Our greatest need has been taken care of by Christ on the cross. The guilt and the shame that we have because of our sin has been done away with. And because our greatest need is cared for, does it really matter if we suffer through some physical hardships in this life? Does it matter if we suffer a little financial difficulties 
so that we can serve others? Does it matter if maybe we go hungry every once in a while? Does it matter if we drive uh, a beat-up used car or maybe if we don't live in a fancy house? Do these things really matter when we understand that our greatest need has been cared for in the gospel? You see, serving others always involves sacrifice. It always does. But as one as ones who have been set free through faith in Christ, it is the right thing for us to do. I've been somewhat enamored by the Civil War lately. Um, I listened to some talks that Harry Reader had given on Christian manhood, where he uses several generals from the Civil War uh, to prove his points. And so recently I've taken up one of the biographies of Robert E. Lee. This is something that I never imagined doing. I am a Yankee. And here I am reading uh, the biography of the head of the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee. The Harry Reader, one of the more prominent pastors in the, the PCA, refers to Robert E. Lee as the greatest American that our country has ever produced. And as I'm reading through his biography, I don't know if I can say that, um, but I've been impressed by Robert E. Lee. Not only his uh, ability to, to lead men in battle, but his faith. Um, but my illustration doesn't come from Robert E. Lee this morning. He refers to, uh, Harry Reader in his talk refers to a Union general by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. See, at the end of the war, after all his uh, victories, Joshua Chamberlain was chosen by General Ulysses S. Grant to receive the surrender of the Confederate Army at Appomattox Courthouse in, in 1865. Joshua Chamberlain was a Christian, and he understood the gravity of the moment, how important this moment in our nation's history was. And he wanted to do something to display Christian character at such a moment as this. So on the morning of April 12, 1865, with Union troops lining the road to Appomattox Courthouse, the rebel forces began the humiliating march to the courthouse to lay down their arms and to unconditionally surrender. As you can imagine, the rebel troops at that time were pretty dejected, hanging their heads. As the Confederate General John Gordon passed Chamberlain, Chamberlain gave a very shocking order. This is one that nobody expected. He didn't tell anyone else about it except for the man who was playing the bugle so that he knew uh, what to play when he gave the order. Chamberlain gave the order for all the Union troops to carry arms. And what that meant is that the Union troops would at that point stand at attention and salute the Confederate soldiers as they were passing by. When the Confederate General Gordon realized what was happening, he dug his spurs into the side of the horse that he was riding, he reared up, and he returned, he returned the salute to Chamberlain, and he gave the order for his soldiers to return the salute as well to their Union brothers. 
And because of this order by Chamberlain, the rebel soldiers at that point marched to their surrender with dignity, with a sense, uh, with not this sense of humiliation, but they could hold their heads high. Later in life, General Gordon would remember this selfless act by Chamberlain, and he would refer to Chamberlain as one of the knightliest soldiers of all the Federal Army. But the thing is, many people in the North did not appreciate what Chamberlain did. He caught flack for it. He was even concerned at at one point that he might receive court-martial for it. And what happened later on in life, that one act probably prevented him from holding many public offices. As you know, many of the generals who fought in that war, Ulysses S. Grant and others, um, would go on to prominence in, in politics, Grant eventually becoming president. Chamberlain was the governor of Maine uh, for several terms, but beyond that, he never received nominations uh, from his party, partly because of his one act at the Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. But even though he knew his actions may cost him later in life, Chamberlain knew that this salute was the right thing to do. It was the Christian thing to do. He was not concerned with himself. He was not concerned with his reputation, what would happen to him, but he was concerned with the dignity and the pride of the Confederate soldiers who were walking to surrender. So how are we using our freedom? How are are we doing as a church in service to one another and in service to the community around us? And I mean that honestly. How are we doing? Um, As a pastor of this church, on behalf of this session, I would love an honest critique. Are we serving others in love? Are we using our freedom to serve one another in love? Are we using our freedom to serve the community around us in love? Are we using our freedom to serve the world in love? And if not, why? As a church body, we have ways that we can use our freedom to serve others in Christ. As a church body, we need to be giving ourselves away. What can we do to serve others around us? Now the ironic thing is that now that we have been set free from the law and from legalism, Paul is actually calling us here to fulfill the law. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And that one word is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law was never intended to earn favor with God. Instead, God designed it as a way that we can live holy lives as followers of Christ. We keep the law out of gratitude for God, to God for what He has done for us. We keep the law in order to live holy lives according to the will of God. Tim Keller, in his um, in his commentary on Galatians, says it this way. He says, the gospel frees you to live any way that you want. But if you truly understand the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then you will ask this question, how can I live for him? And this is what the answer will be. Look at the will of God as he has expressed it in the law. 
So practically, on a day-to-day basis, honestly, what does this bring? What does it really look like? Uh, one example came to my mind. Uh, it's an example from marriage. And you, you've seen the scene. It's been played out many times. A husband's coming home from work at the end of a long day. He meets a wife at the door who seems exasperated, caring for children all day long, and throws a crying child into his arms and says, Take him. It's your turn. Um, we may have all been there. Um, husbands, I know that you've been working hard all day. You're tired. I've been there. But take the kid. Serve your wife. Put her needs in front of your own. Because this is what Christ has set us free to do. The marriage is going to display the sacrificial love that Christ has for his bride, the church. Then husbands need to love their wives sacrificially. It happens, it needs to be vice versa as well. Wives, you need to be loving your, your husbands sacrificially. But husbands need to take children. God has made us leaders in our households. So that is just one practical example of how we can serve like Paul is calling us to serve here in Galatians. But as we conclude, what, we're, what we have the privilege of this morning is celebrating the Lord's Supper. We have the privilege of celebrating this sacrament. This is a physical demonstration of the love that Christ has for us and the service that he has done for us, his people. You see, there's no greater display of this love than in the Lord's Supper where we remember and celebrate Christ's death and his resurrection. We remember what Christ has done to set us free. You see, Christ was free. He was more free than anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth. But what he did was he set aside his freedom. Instead, he subjected himself to the will of God. He served others. He served people, the very creatures that he created. He served them. He willingly subjected himself to them, and he put their needs above his own. What he did is he put our needs above his own needs, and he gave his life that others might be free. Even though he himself was completely free, he became a willing servant of his Father in heaven. So as believers, those who have put your faith in Christ, come to the table. Come to the table of our Lord. This is not Trinity's table. This is not my table. This is the Lord's table. So if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church, if you have put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, please come. Celebrate. But if you have not put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, let the elements simply pass you by. And what you can do is you can come talk to me afterwards because I would love to share with you um, what Christ has done in my life and how Christ can set you free. But as we prepare for communion this morning, we have a communion hymn. And at this point, I would like you to turn in your bulletins if you would pull out your inserts, 
and let's stand and sing together the power of the cross. Please stand and sing.